Thank you for joining us for the third episode of A Story of Us, Our Humanity, History, and Department. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department. I am Mackie O'Hara. And I'm Alex Wilkins. We are back to talk about migration. In our last episode, we talked about short-term mobility in both primates and humans. This time, we're going to talk about more permanent movements in the past. Anthropologists that study humans in the past are called archaeologists. They research where and how people lived, which can cover a broad range of research questions. Today we'll focus on how archaeologists study migration, specifically long-term and permanent movement. Of course, people throughout time have practiced short-term mobility, but it's really hard to identify short-term mobility in the archaeological record. And that's because temporary living structures are often made out of materials that disintegrate or degrade over time, like wood or cloth. If you're using these types of portable materials for housing, you're probably going to take it with you when you move again. So the only thing that will be left behind might be an imprint in the ground. Sometimes that imprint is preserved, but more often it's not. We should probably define some terms before we get started. Archaeologists, like we said, study humans in the past, and they usually do this by studying the materials that people make or use or the effects of their presence. Some archaeologists have even likened their research to going through the trash of ancient cultures. Yeah, and these materials can be either man-made, like pottery, or naturally occurring things that have been modified, like stone. But either way, all of those objects are called artifacts. Artifacts are used to help understand cultures in the past. A collection of artifacts associated with a particular group is referred to as material culture. Archaeologists work to understand how the artifacts were made, how they functioned, and possibly even their symbolic meaning within that culture. These artifacts aren't just randomly found. Usually, archaeologists excavate archaeological sites, which are locations where they know or suspect that past populations lived. Archaeologists excavate or dig certain portions of the site in order to expose different parts of the settlement. They may uncover buildings, streets, wells, or fields. Where the artifacts are found help archaeologists determine the use of that space. The deeper they dig in the ground, the further back in time they go. This is because soil and material cultures are laid down chronologically, so the older material is below the newer material. Think about the clothes in your laundry basket. Clothes that you wore on Monday will be at the bottom, Wednesdays will be in the middle, and Fridays will be at the top. So if you dig back through it, you can reconstruct which outfit you wore on each day. Let's bring this back to migration in the archaeological record. Artifacts from different cultures can vary significantly. Particularly, the style of these artifacts can reflect different cultural tastes and symbols that can have variable meanings. Style can include the size, shape, colors, and decorations or symbols that are present on the artifact. All of those features can vary based on the culture that the artisans were trained in. Why don't we use ceramics or pottery to illustrate what we're talking about with stylistic features? Archaeologists find a lot of ceramics all over the world when excavating sites from different time periods. Great idea. Ceramics often have different designs pushed into the clay or painted onto their surface. Certain cultures might prefer different symbols on their pottery. For example, if we were making pottery today in America, you might expect to see a lot of stars and stripes or even a bald eagle. But in China, the dragon and the phoenix might be more popular. Right, so the symbols themselves can give archaeologists a clue to what ethnic group made a certain ceramic. Let's pretend for a minute to be archaeologists working in an area that has a really big river running through the center of the landscape. We notice that the pottery on the west side of the river tends to incorporate circles in the design, but the pottery on the east side tends to have zigzag lines. 
We would be surprised then if we found pottery with zigzag lines on the west side of the river, and we'd want to know how it got there. It could be that people from the east side moved over to the west side and brought their pottery preferences with them. But we couldn't just say for certain that this was a permanent movement of humans or migration, because it could have just been an example of trade. Or it could have been an example of cultural diffusion, which is the spreading of a cultural trait from one area into some areas around it. The east side people may have been interacting with the west side, and the people on the west side may have just started copying the zigzag patterns that were popular on the east side. So it helps if you have lots of different types of artifacts and evidence that are telling the same story. Ceramicists, or archaeologists that study pottery, can also analyze the materials that were used to make ceramics in order to figure out whether it was just pottery designs or people actually moving across the river. Analyzing the materials used to make pottery can be really helpful because people used local resources like clay. However, clay by itself doesn't make very strong pottery or hold up well under fire, so organic and inorganic tempers are used. Tempers are chosen and based on the type of pottery being made, but the selection is limited by available resources. Inorganic tempers can range from larger chunks of smashed up calcite to fine ground silica. A common organic temper was animal manure. Just like with styles and symbols, cultures tended to have certain types of clay and tempers that they preferred. This could have been due to what was available, the efficiency of making the pottery, or the durability they provided. Potters are more likely to get their materials locally. Clay in one location is going to have a different physical and chemical makeup than clay in other locations. If a pot was found at a site on the east side of the river, but was made with clay from the west side, it might indicate a trade of this pottery. Think about cars. Lots of cars are assembled in the United States, but the parts and the raw materials that make them are imported from somewhere else. Exactly. They could just be trading the raw materials. It's pretty unlikely that neighboring groups would trade large chunks of clay, but we do know they traded smaller, portable raw materials in the past. But if the style and the material match a neighboring group, then would it be more likely to be migration? Possibly. So what if they learned that one of the temper raw materials was better for making stronger pots, they might decide to import that material. And when they did this, they also copied stylistic features and started to use them. So sometimes function and style move hand in hand. This could also be an example of demic diffusion, which happens when a population moves into an area it had not previously occupied. This new group of people can either displace, replace, or intermix with the population that was already living there. This is a really complicated topic. It's almost kind of like a big logic problem. And we're not even done yet. There's another factor that archaeologists can incorporate, which is technology. That's right. Archaeologists can try to understand how ancient craftsmen made different artifacts because there is more than one way to fire a pot. Early on, people would use different methods to build and form ceramics. Some groups would roll the clay into a long worm-like shape and then coil the roll on top of itself like a snake. Others would pinch and smooth the clay in order to form the shape of the vessel. Later, the pottery wheel was invented, which made the process much faster and more reliable. Each of these different methods or technologies leaves different evidence on the pottery itself, either on its surface or on the inside. Different groups might have different preferences for what method they like to use, or even what technology is available to them in the first place. Some past cultures may not have even encountered the pottery wheel yet. True, but if a group encounters a new technology that is more efficient than their current technology, they're more likely to adopt the new method. We should point out, though, people can learn about new technologies in other ways, not just by new groups or people moving into the area. 
One of the best known examples of the spread of technology is the movement of agriculture out of the Fertile Crescent and northwest into Europe. Agriculture allowed for higher population densities in one sedentary location. Even though this new technology, agriculture, could support larger populations, eventually those populations would get too large and begin to move north and west into Eastern Europe where there were plenty of fertile lands. There's different evidence about how they interacted with locals depending on the archeological sites and regions. New groups continued moving into new areas to settle and farm. Their population would eventually grow until their agriculture was unable to adequately support the population's needs. At that point, a portion of that population would leave and start the whole process over again. It's taken archaeologists a long time and many sources of evidence like ceramics, plants, and animal remains, and DNA to figure out how all of this happened because archaeologists want to test every hypothesis from as many angles as possible. This is why looking at all of the different types of artifacts becomes really important. Ceramics aren't the only things that archaeologists find when excavating sites. Stone tools, jewelry, art, coins, architecture, and even plant and animal remains are common artifacts found at archaeological sites all over the world. Let's think of an example that everyone's probably heard of that would have a lot of surviving artifacts. Rome is a good example. The Roman army moved through most of Europe in order to gain control over various natural resources. Usually, they would leave garrisons of soldiers in conquered locations to maintain control while they moved on to new lands. Administrators from the center of the Roman Empire would be relocated in order to maintain control of more important areas. In this instance, garrisons of soldiers, craftsmen, and even religious priests and attendants would also colonize the new areas. These soldiers could have been Roman or conscripted soldiers from other regions in the empire. These soldiers would construct a town or vicus in the Roman style. This included straight roads, shops, and temples. But those towns would usually be near local villages, so it's possible to find both types of local residences dating to the same time periods. England is an excellent example of how the relationship between the conquerors and the conquered changed over time. Archaeologists can identify which villages were occupied by British Iron Age peoples because they generally constructed their buildings in a circular pattern, which contrasted with the right angles that the Roman builders loved to use. Even the types of foods that were present can hint at the culture of the people that lived in the buildings. The Romans imported wine in specialized jugs called amphora. They would have also had different types of dishes that they prepared, so both the cookware and the plant and animal remains left behind on that cookware could hint at the likely ethnicity of those living in the buildings being excavated. And there are actually Roman recipes that have survived. One of them even describes how to make a fancy dish using dormice. So if archaeologists found dormice bones cooked in certain spices, then the remains would represent the plants and spices used in Roman cooking. And they'll have a pretty good idea that the houses belonged to Romans. Differences in jewelry, like clothing pins, were also quite distinct at the early part of the Roman occupation of Britain. Both tended to be made of metal, but Roman brooches and clothing pins could be quite ornate and were often enameled. However, as the two groups continued to live near each other, they started to adopt different aspects of each other's culture. For example, Roman temples in Britain have been found that may be dedicated to local deities that were being worshipped before they were conquered. Influence also went the other way. In several areas of Britain, large Roman-style villas have been found on top of older, grand Iron Age structures. 
The art, architecture, and taste for wine was culturally very Roman, but in looking at the cultural material from the site as a whole, archaeologists have interpreted them to be the houses of local families of importance that had adopted much of the Roman style. The argument here is that people began to see the Roman way of life as higher status and slowly incorporated that culture into their own lifestyles. This is definitely an example of that cultural diffusion that we talked about earlier. Styles of one culture can work their way into that of another. I think this is also a good example of demic diffusion. The Romans may have replaced and displaced local Britons, but for around three centuries they lived near the local inhabitants. I guess the next question would be whether the Roman and ancient Britain populations began to intermarry and become more of a cohesive population, both behaviorally or genetically. Unfortunately, unless we can find historical documents or carvings from this time period that detail marriage and birth information, it would be hard to tell if they were intermarrying. So I guess then in order to answer that question, anthropologists would have to go directly to the source and analyze the human remains from that time period. We've covered a lot today, but we've only talked about the objects and organisms that humans use. Human skeletal remains can provide evidence of migration too. So the next time you hear Alex and I, we'll be talking about how anthropologists can learn about migration using human remains. Yes, but in our very next episode 3B, we will host a conversation between a grad student and a faculty member who study different North American migrations using the archaeological record. In the meantime, subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU, or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. And leave a review of the show on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show. We hope you join us next time as we continue to explore A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. <laughs>